Hello everyone and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by Gail Schimmel. Good morning everyone. Gail, the last time we spoke, you were taking a break from writing and I'm dying to hear how that's going. Fiona, it has been very interesting. First of all, I feel a little bit like I've given up a drug. You know, (laughs) there is this weird temptation to go back to it um, Mm -hmm. and to just have a little write. um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things it's done, although I must be clear, I'm still working on Katie Gale books, but that's a different type of writing. But working on my own work is so much part of my everyday that it's weird without it. But it has freed my brain up a bit. Mm -hmm. And it has freed my brain up to go back to the world and the book that I need to sort out next and edit next and come up with ideas about how I'm going to fix it. The temptation to now go and do the clever idea that I've had Mm. is overwhelming, but I'm not allowing myself. I'm sticking to that time that I set myself to not write, and I'm doing it like somebody giving up a drug, Mm -hmm. that I have to stick to that, and then I'm allowed to. And I suspect that by the time it comes, I'm going to be so hungry to write that it's going to be a joyful experience, I hope. It reminds me a bit about what Zukiswa Vanner was saying about how she walks around with an idea for quite a while Mm. and then suddenly she sits down and, as she put it, vomits it out onto the page. And, you know, I used to be more like that. And in recent years, I've become a bit driven by the idea that I have to be writing all the time. Mm. Um, Mm. And I think this is just this experiment is very good for my brain. So, Fiona, let me live vicariously through you. How's your writing week? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gone okay. Today was the week that I needed to submit the first 10,000 words of a project with a view to the publisher considering it and deciding whether to greenlight it or not. And I realized that there were two things I could be doing. I could give them just whatever would be the first 10,000 words of this book as I would write it in a kind of unforced way. And then there was the temptation to show all my best bits. You know, I wasn't really going to introduce the baddie at this early stage, but then I thought, but then they're not going to know my baddie and I've got such a good baddie in my head. (laughs) So I kind of shoehorned a little chapter from the baddie's perspective into the first 10,000 words. And it made me think about the decisions that authors make when they're submitting to publishers Mm. or agents and you have to submit the first 30 pages or the first three chapters or whatever it might be. Do you just submit whatever it is or do you try to shoehorn your show pieces in there to make it more likely for them to accept it I don't know if you have any thoughts on this Back in the days when I used to try to get international agents I struggled with this and I don't know because you want to show them your natural writing Mm -hmm. and the way the book will be but you also exactly what you say, you want to give them the best bits Um, and I've never known what the correct thing to do is, we should have asked Amy Hadendrich, she's the expert on how to submit things. We should have asked her about this. You know, my books often have quite a slow build up. Right. Um, right. And that makes it worse because now in the first three chapters, uh, mm. um, but something I'm playing with a bit more is having prologues. Right. And then that solves both problems. First of all, from the submission point of view, you've put a very exciting chapter up first. And then from a reader hook point of view, you've put a very exciting chapter up first. So unless I am edited out of it, my next book starts with a prologue in the mm-hmm. center of the action so that you actually know from the beginning what one of the big things is. And then when I do my slow build up to it, at least you know what you're slowly <laughs> building up to. <laughs> yeah, I love a good prologue, I must say. But I, I quite often go back to sort of childhood days with a prologue, like I'll go 20 years uh, earlier or something like that. That's also a thing I like to do. That, that, is, that can be quite fun and, and give the motivation of the thing that is going to happen. Yeah, like the, the little seed that leads to the thing. The thing that makes the psychopath the psychopath. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Fiona, in all the submitting, have you had time to read or consume anything? Oh, I absolutely have, and I'm so excited about it. The book is Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang, and it's the best thing I have read in months I am so psyched about this book. I don't believe that this will be the only time I talk about it here because it's 
so much set in the writing world. I had no idea. I thought it was about the sort of East Asian immigrant experience mm. in America or England or something like that. It is only tangentially. It is about writing and writers and the publishing world. And it is about everything we talk about on this podcast. I'm absolutely riveted by it. And one thing that came out of it was this issue of professional jealousy, mm. of starting off in your writing career and seeing somebody who was maybe in class with you or, you know, was a, a, a modest debut novelist at the same mm. time as you were and suddenly makes it big. Do we all genuinely celebrate that person and feel happy for their success or do we get torn apart by terrible pangs of jealousy? And she really goes into that. How does one deal with professional jealousy? Have you ever felt this, girl? <laughs> Have I ever felt this? Am I human? Do I breathe oxygen? Of course I felt it. Yeah. Um, but I do feel it's something that as I've got older and more experienced, I've become more sensible about. Mm. So at the beginning, particularly when I was trying to get published and wasn't yet, and I had this dream, I, I got quite, and this is a, a pattern actually in my thinking about anything. I kind of got this feeling like there's a finite amount of book deals to go around. Yes. And I suppose that is Zero true. Zero sum game. But it, in a way, it also it's, isn't. It's, it's not true, but it is true. It's it's more true than because I had the same feeling about fertility treatment, and I thought there were a finite number of babies to go around, <laughs> and I got very jealous when people got pregnant. And it's less true for babies than it is for books. Right. Um, but so I'd see someone publishing something that I felt was something I could write, mm, and mm. feel really bitter that they had got the deal, even though I hadn't even been trying to, mm. you know. But as I've got older. I've realized that the more South African books that are being published and having success, mm. the more South African authors are going to be read. So everybody's success is all our success. And Absolutely. nowadays, I really, when I feel happy for a fellow writer, it is a genuine, absolute joy for them. And actually, my worst thing is when you read a, a much hyped book, and it's not that great. And I just feel my heart breaks for the writer mm. now. So I've actually mm. gone to the other extreme of in, instead of feeling pre professional jealousy, I feel a professional protectiveness. Um, right. So it, I think it's something, though, you've got to watch the whole time. It is very easy to get that little nagging thing of it should be me. Where's my international deal? Mm. Where's my prize winning book? And to remember that that we're, we're in this together fighting to make people read South African books. Yeah, in South Africa, a rising tide lifts all the boats and we are one of those boats and their success is our success. And what have you been reading or watching or listening to lately? So I'm reading a book that I'm loving. It is called I Have Some Questions for You and it is by Rebecca, I think you pronounce this, McKay. Mm -hmm. um, she was shortlisted or longlisted for the Pulitzer, which is normally a thing that will put me off a book. Right. Um, but someone that I uh, respect their reading taste told me I would love it. And one of my favorite books ever is The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Mm. And I've always been sad that I've read The Secret History for the first time and I will never be able to read it for the first time again. And I'm getting a little bit of that feeling from this book. There is something that, that privileged school age, college age children, mm. this elite world of academia and something dark happening. And this is about a woman who goes back to her very elite high school. It's a bit confusing for the South African reader because they use words like sophomore and junior and you think they're talking about college, but they're not. It's a high school. Mm -hmm. And while she was there, somebody was murdered and somebody was arrested for that murder, but was it the right person? And now that she's an adult looking back at what happened, she's seeing things in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's lovely and I'm loving it, but I also am very interested in my reading of it because it is a literary book. It's not a fast-paced thriller, mm -hmm. and I'm reading it very slowly, whereas I'll gobble up a fast-paced murder thriller. Right. This I'm reading slowly, as I imagine the author wrote it more slowly, um, but that's not why I'm reading it slowly. And I'm interested how I think our brains have less capacity for slow literary writing than they used to. Mm -hmm. Because probably mm -hmm. if I reread The Little Secret now, I mean, no, not The Little Secret, The Secret History. <laughs> I will find 
that it's also got a slowness to it and a literary feel to it. And then it didn't bother me at all. But now with my TikTok, Twitter, Facebook brain, mm, I'm mm. struggling a bit with it. I, I've been reading it all week, which is very unusual for me. Yeah, no, it's it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. So our guest today is someone who writes some dark material and uh, perhaps we can ask him about some of these issues we've been chatting about. Today's guest is Hamilton Wendy. Hamilton has worked for the BBC, National Geographic, CNN, The Sunday Times. He's an author, journalist, TV producer. He has as far as he remembers, at least 11 books out at the moment, including House of War, Only the Dead, The King's Shilling, and most recently Red Air. He also has a series of books for tween children called the Arabella series, and I believe books three and four are happening as we speak. So, Hamilton, thank you for being here today and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you both for having me. Hamilton, we're so excited to have you here, and we are going to leap right in and ask you, how has your writing week been? Well, it's been a good week, actually. Um, I did a review of Daryl Bristow Bovey's latest book, Finding Endurance, for the Sunday Times, and that was a real, not even a labor, an activity of, of love. I mean, I loved his book. I've been fascinated by the Antarctic, although I've never been there. I have been to the Arctic Circle, though, mm-hmm. and uh, so... I wrote that and wrote it carefully and thoughtfully, and it it was just a pleasure to write. I'm working on a collection of my newspaper articles and BBC radio recordings, which I'm putting together. So this morning I was up early trying to put that together, just tracing where the articles were published 20 years ago. I mean, I've kept them in a file, but I haven't kept them quite as (laughs) well as I might have, you know. So I'm working on that, and then I've got another novel in the back of my mind about Rome and ancient Rome and Africa, which is only really in the research stage. So when you are looking at old articles and thinking of collecting them into book form, are you going to change or mend or update them no, in not any at way? All. No, no. So it's, it's just a process of collecting. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, actually. They were, like any writer, everything I do, I polish absolutely to it's it's to the nth degree that i feel i can do it so everything that's written the spelling is properly checked um i wrote some stuff about zuma in a cnn blog when he became president and i was suspicious of him then but not as devastated <laughs> as we are now right. so i'm i'm think i'm not sure i'm going to leave those in and it'll depend on on how how the book goes but i was guilty of wishful thinking that actually this might be a better option for the country. And that's a bit of a danger to any kind of journalism or nonfiction, or certainly journalism. And so I'm thinking of leaving them in, not as a mea culpa necessarily, but as a, a, a snapshot of what we might have, or some of us might have thought at that time. Mm. So I don't change things, no. And writing does always have context. We've talked about this before in the con- context of novel writing. Um, and a novel that you wrote 20 years ago might now not be exactly what you would produce now. And I'm sure even more true for newspaper articles. That's absolutely true. I wrote a very – many years ago, I wrote a very um, – uh, personal novel about my time in Japan as a young man at 23 when I was teaching English in Japan, which was an amazing experience. And my editor looked at it. You know, I only showed it to her like 15 years later. She said, that's not you anymore. Mm -hmm. And that novel's never been published, Uh, which I don't know. I might go back to it now when I'm a bit older and say, oh, well, there's the innocence of youth. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's go there. Let's hear your superhero origin story how did you come to be all the many things you are normally I say how did you come to be a writer but that wouldn't quite grasp what I'm Mm. what I'm trying to ask you particularly interested in the war journalism how do you go from being a guy at school and then apparently teaching English in Japan um didn't see that one coming to war reporting and then these amazing novels about it and children's writing. Superhero Well, it's interesting. I I think about this a lot and I'm planning to write a piece about it. The subconscious has definitely guided me. The psyche, the universe, I don't know, you can put any any label you like on it. I mean, I was doing, uh, you know, I was a conscientious kid at high school. 
got a first, what was then called a first class matric nowadays you wouldn't even be accepted at university <laughs> with the results I got but anyway um and I did maths and science which I'm very grateful for particularly the science um because a lot of journalists don't have a scientific background mm-hmm. and that's interesting and I did uh, a course called building science at Wits University for 2 years and I it was basically a mix of bcom and civil engineering great degree if you want to go into the construction industry mm-hmm. and i was we went on a visit to a construction site and i thought you know this is not for me here. <laughs> and i lay on my bed at 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 19 and i thought yeah i want to be a writer and i'm not entirely sure look i always english i i used to love english at school i remember reading like uh, browning's poem about my last duchess and I, I remember that sitting in Grahamstown at, at boarding school looking out the window over the cricket fields and thinking how happy I was just to be reading that poem oh wow and so and history was also a very important part of of what I did at school I mean I, I just digress slightly I knew I was never going to be an accountant when I got caught reading Jane Austen in double notes <laughs> unusual thing yeah. for a boarding school boy to get into trouble for. Yeah, I, I remember I hid it in my maths book, that, you know, and so, that, so I pretended to be looking at my maths book. And I remember that first sentence so well, you know, it, it is a truth university acknowledged that a man in possession of good fortune must be in want of a wife. Mm-hmm. And I, that struck me as a perfect sentence. And even at 15 or whenever, 14 or 15, well, it was amazing to me. And then it's actually quite interesting that you even thought about building for one second. I, I, I don't know why I did. I mean, look, I think that we were taught at school a BA is bugger all. And, um, you know, look, I was given a great education. And, you know, I still, to this day, look back on the education I had and I'm very grateful for it. But I don't know, you know, whatever, you you do what you're told it. 16 or 17, you know, or sometimes you do. Yeah, <laughs> if only. If yeah, only exactly, that was still yeah. the truth. <laughs> um, and so, I, I, you know, I, I passed the first year, then I was, um, we had a very serious rowing accident in the rowing club where the truck rolled over and um, one of, we were all thrown out of the truck and one of the guys had a terrible spine injury and I'd seen it a rugby injury at school that they weren't supposed to move him and everyone said drag him out of the road and I said no no leave him there because if you do drag him out he'll be paralyzed right. and they, they finally sent a helicopter from Garden City Clinic and they rolled and they said everyone said you know well done so that rowing became I, beca- I was elected to the committee and I became very involved in rowing and um, I thought okay I'm not going to do building science anymore so I kind of spent the second year rowing and reading, which was a good combination. And then I started a BA at 19 or 20 even perhaps. I think, you know, 19 or 20. So I was quite late to, to restart. But, you know, my parents were wonderful. I'm very grateful for their saying, you know, my dad said to me, I never thought you were right for this building thing. Go and do it, you know. <laughs> and um, I, the thing that English, studying English literature was great because it gave you a great education. It taught you all sorts of things outside of the text. But what really helped me to become a storyteller, and you were saying earlier, I'm not quite sure how to define you, was drama and film. Reading the old Greek dramatists, seeing John Ford's old movies, looking at Eisenstein, the Russian filmmakers' movies, and just starting to see that there was a broader way of telling stories than simply writing. But of course, I love writing and and the written page. So I did my BA and um, drama and film. I just knew then I had to get into the film industry. Um, But, you know, I still loved I mean, I still loved reading Paradise Lost and, and things like that, you know, which I never would have read if it wasn't, hadn't been for my BA, you know. And I went to a party and I met two young sisters at a party. It was January of 84. And they said, come and have tea, my friend and I, come and have tea with us or whatever. So we went to their house and their dad was, their stepdad was the BBC cameraman. Mm-hmm. And he met these two likely young lads, both of whom were, were one of them was already working as a runner in the film industry. The other was just finishing, just finished his degree in drama and film. And we started running tapes for the BBC in and out of the townships. And um, that 
was a real hook for me. I mean, it, it, 1984, yeah. March of 1984, there was a uprising in Sharpeville. And basically, we had an intifada of 10 years until the elections in 1994. So South Africa was catapulted onto the international news stage. And um, I remember at 22, I think, so just graduated, no, 23. So, the um, February 1985, going down to Crossroads, which in Cape Town, and there was a uprising there, and the police started firing rubber bullets and shotgun birdshot. It was pretty unpleasant, but it wasn't catastrophic at that point. And then late that afternoon, myself and this very experienced cameraman, the BBC guy, uh, by that stage, I was doing sound. If you remember, we had those two, we had those two man crews and I was carrying the, the microphone. We just stood to one side and Kufut came in, in Caspers and their camouflage uniforms. And they made us a, a lager outside Crossroads and they started talking to each other on the radios. And we just stood to one side. They didn't even notice us and we weren't trying to hide necessarily. We were just being, I don't know, a little bit circumspect. And the next minute, they drove into the lanes in between the shacks and started shooting out of the sides of the Caspers. And I saw them with my own eyes. We filmed them dragging seven bodies into the back of a Casper. Mm. And that was a... I mean, I still feel a bit of trauma even thinking Mm. about it, but it was a fundamentally important moment in my life for journalism and for storytelling because we filmed these seven bodies being thrown into the back of a Casper and... I don't remember the exact circumstance, but Pip Boerter announced that only one person, I think, or maybe two had been killed and a few injured. And that night on the BBC Mm. News at nine o'clock, we showed seven bodies being dragged into the Casper. So the act of bearing witness of Mm. keeping the record straight became something that's very important to me. And uh, so... In my writing, I differentiate very strongly between what I do in journalism and nonfiction mm. and what I do in fiction. And um, I always say, look, in fiction, I've got all sorts of ways of exploring interesting psychological feelings, truths, emotions. But in nonfiction, my reader must believe that what happened actually did happen. And it must be so. It and must, it must be it so. Must be and if I may slightly digress. I know Anki Kroch wrote her book about um, the Truth Commission, which she did a great job as a journalist. I was also working on the Truth Commission as, as, a, as, a, as a television journalist for Australian TV. And she said something along the lines, you know, she invented that um, uh, affair in, 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 in the book. And somebody wrote a PhD thesis at Rhodes, basically quoting me, because Anki Kroch said this Deep, there's a kind of metaphorical truth in it. And for me as a journalist, that is not acceptable. <laughs> no, right. Metaphorical truth is not <laughs> And so she, the person who wrote the PhD actually quoted exactly what I said earlier about when you do nonfiction, the audience, the readers must believe that what happened actually happened. And they mustn't just believe it because you persuade them. They must believe it because it's in your notebooks or it's, in my case, very often recorded on, on video. Um, Hamilton, I'm interested in the, the sort of bearing witness and the truth telling, but also, and this must be something you've thought about a lot, the ethics of documenting suffering. And, um, I've thought about Susan Sontag's essay regarding the pain of others and just that, that act of being there and recording someone else's private suffering. How does one negotiate that as a journalist? Or do you just record what's there and leave the decision to be made by a producer at another stage? Um, how exactly does one deal with that? Well, it, there's no one way of doing it, particularly mm. in today's world where there's, you know, there's so many different people can be filming what you're filming on their cell phone and they can get a different angle and even more suffering or less suffering and put that up on YouTube. And, you know, that's, that's how we live today. So there isn't one clear answer to that. Mm. Um, I mean, there, there have been a number of times where I have and my crew and I have broken away and helped people. Right. But I would say that the primary thing is to document what is happening. Right. Um, Martha Gellhorn, if you've ever read her 
journalism. Um, she she published a book of her essays, and it was published, I think, in the in the forties, and then again in the fifties, and it's 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 called um, the Face of War. Mm-hmm. And Martha, and I'm paraphrasing, but Martha Gellhorn said something along the lines of, you know, when I was young and 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 easily influenced, I thought that if we could only show the wrongdoing, then the, the saving angels would come. Mm-hmm. And she says now, after two world, after, not she wasn't covering the First World War, after a World War, Spanish Spanish Civil War. Um, the threat of nuclear war, I think she mentions, I no longer believe that. Right. She said, however, I do believe that the act of keeping the record straight is an honorable act within itself. And that to me has always resonated, that, that paraphrased quote from Martha Gellhorn. Um, because we certainly can't solve the world's problems, but we can certainly make a difference. I mean, we see it in this country. Journalism is playing an incredibly important role mm. in keeping some level of accountability and certainly our freedom, because the one thing we do have left in this country is freedom. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and journalism is, is working, as is, thank God, our, our legal profession. Yeah. Um, so, for example, when I was covering the Rwandan genocide, I, we never filmed any actual acts of genocide, which a few people did. Right. But we certainly filmed the aftermath. And I remember going in the first day that I was in Rwanda in 1994, going to a camp where children who had escaped the genocide were being, it was an old safari camp and they were, they turned it into a kind of a refugee camp. And I remember the one child with a, had a, bandage on her head and she'd been stabbed it was actually he, he'd been stabbed in the head with a spear and he was just rocking back and forth on his heels and um, at that point we would leave it to the professionals, there's nothing I can do in that space of two hours that we've we're filming to, to help him you know, but I do think that the broader witness of saying this is what happened to this child mm-hmm. remains to this day, 30 years later a vital, a vital thing you know Kevin Carter, if you remember that yeah. shot of the the, mm. the vulture next to a child, I was, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, it's look, it's a really iconic and important image, and I feel I, I didn't know Kevin very well. I knew him to say hello to at a press conference, but um, you know, he was vilified completely, in my opinion, wrongly for not doing something to help the child. Well. If you've ever been to a village in South Sudan or other parts of Africa, even in our own country, very often raptor birds fly around the village because they can pick up scraps of food and meat. Mm. So it was quite normal, actually, for a vulture to be there. And there's no question in my mind, I wasn't there, but I've been to many refugee camps in South Sudan in particular. And there's no question that they are very well organized and that somebody would have picked up that child a few seconds later mm. and I don't think Kevin had the ability to express himself in words to defend himself so you know the picture remains a powerful metaphor and I think that it works mm. on that level and I don't think that he crossed any ethical boundaries in taking that picture as, a, as an extreme example or as mm. a very well known example mm. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about something that, that I was thinking about before we interview, we started the interview as well, that you do something that for me is so counter to who I am, that, that ability to walk towards fear. Um, and I, I'm the fight or flight, I will be flying or freezing. I could never have a career where you walk into fear. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Like, what is it about you that makes you able to go back again and again and again and re-traumatize yourself? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm certainly less able psychologically to do that now at 60 years old than I was in the past. Um, there's two stories that I'll, 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 I'll share. The first was at Chris Harney's funeral um, around uh, if, what was then F&B Stadium. And there was a set of uh, late Victorian, early Edwardian houses that a lot of sort of trendy white people were living in the ed- on the edge of Soweto. And these houses were being attacked by angry black youths. And um, we went 
myself and the, the cameraman turned to me because I was working as his producer slash sound man at the time. And he said, you don't have to come. And looking back on it, there was a certain level of you've got to stick with your comrade, which is a very important part in kind of combat mm. fear. And I can talk about that later about Afghanistan and remind me. Um, but I was less eager to go than him. Now, there's a thing. Cameraman is looking through the eyepiece. Mm. So there is a psychological shift that happens that you're actually watching on TV. And Joao de Silva, who was a photographer at the time, said to me, you're the only one here who doesn't have his eye to an eyepiece, so you tell us when to go, Mm. which was interesting. And um, we walked in there, and they were torturing a dog with burning brands. And we didn't know it at the time, but there was a, a guy trapped in one of the attics with the smoke coming up. And this young black guy who was about 14 came up to us and said, just go, just go, go, go. And I was quite happy to listen to him. But I realized that he was doing something perhaps without even realizing it. He was taking the anger of the crowd and directing it into him. So he was in control. I don't think he was doing this consciously. And so we then, we, we then actually backed out like you see in the movies, you know, you don't turn your back and run. And we left. But I remember... An extreme fear, you know, that fear you get like when you wake up in a dream and you think, oh, my God, I can't move, or mm. you're half awake yeah. in a dream. It, it was an extreme fear, and yet I did it. And I think part of it was a commitment to not letting my comrades down. Then I did, in 2012, I was 50, and I was asked by National Geographic to do a five-part series on the U.S. Marines in Afghanistan. And I knew it was going to be hectic. And I spoke to my wife, Leanne, and I said, should we do this? And she was like, yeah, look. I also did it for my career. My dad was dying of cancer at the time. And, you know, I looked at his eyes and he just said, you've got to go. It's 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 a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And I, I partly went for what I saw in his eyes because I knew it would be a lifetime experience. Mm. I went and about within 24 hours we landed and I was kind of expecting we'd be taken to the front lines in helicopters and we would, uh, you know, maybe go in an armored car to another front line. No, they said, the press assistance officer said, I've got really good news. We've got a kinetic operation for 17 days that you guys are going to walk with the Marines. Oh, now, wow. kinetic <laughs> means like full-on fighting in oh, Marine, Marine speak. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And the guy I was working with, uh, the ideal Bradlow was very experienced war cameraman. He was like, this is way beyond my comfort zone. And I'm like, Bru- <laughs> 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 yeah. whoa, you know, I was like, really? But I did it. We got on the helicopters and we went and we landed. And the the second wave of helicopters came in and they fired and the Taliban fired an RPG at the second wave of helicopters. And then they had... Stacked above them, they had the Predator drones, then the, the, the Cobra gunships, then the C-130 Hercules gunships, and then the Harrier jets in, in sort of concentric circles circling over the, the landing zone, the LZ, as the Americans call it. And um, boom, this Gatling gun, probably from a Cobra helicopter, just absolutely wiped out. We didn't see it, but I knew that was the first death. That was at 4 o'clock in the morning, maybe 3.30 in the morning. And for 15 days, we were ambushed up to three times a day. We were mortared by the Taliban. It, I, I do a talk on it. It was an, it was an odyssey into the deepest sense of fear. And um, I, yeah. I have to ask a very personal question before I let Fiona back. Do you come back and have intense therapy after these things? Yes, I was. I was. Also, that was going to be my next question. How do you take care of your psychological and emotional health, and how have you throughout your career? Well, that's a very interesting. I, I have done a bit of post-traumatic stress counselling, and it's it's been useful up to a point. But you know, I really, really believe in the value of what I do mm-hmm. and what my colleagues do. I really believe in the value of bearing witness. So even talking here today is a form of therapy. So 
I, perhaps I'm very lucky. A, a, a very good friend of mine is extremely debilitated by post-traumatic stress. And years later, and we covered the, the Rwandan genocide together. And I, I do get emotional when I talk about it because, again, I've got a talk that I do that's illustrated with some extraordinary, horrific slides and things like that. But I really feel that talking about it today, 30 years later, still has immense value. Mm-hmm. So I think that positivity, that belief, self-belief is what keeps me from needing post-traumatic stress uh, therapy. Look, I certainly, if a balloon goes off, I'll you know look around and sort of hit the deck. But I think that's okay. a natural trained reaction you know, to, to hearing shoot. I'm certainly for briefly nervous when I hear what I think is shooting. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't debilitate me. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not going to Ukraine. Uh, you right. know, I had a very I serious. I wanted to ask about that as yeah, well. Yeah, I had a very serious back up a few years ago, and I could carry a lot of titanium in my spine. And I just don't think it would be fair, firstly, to my colleagues to be on the front lines mm-hmm. in a really wearing those heavy plates and a heavy helmet, and then my back gives in. And also, you know, I've been very blessed. My back operation was brilliantly successful. I can touch my toes again. And so to. To risk that health issue, mm. you know, I don't think it would be a good idea. So I watched the Ukraine stuff very carefully, and I wrote a piece which was one of the reasons I won the Sikovile Standard Bank Journalism mm. Award this year mm-hmm. about what I, I called it balance, about the the need for balance and the difficulty of getting balance, and yet getting balance for its own sake is not necessarily giving the real story. So I'll give an example. In the Vietnam War, there's a guy called Jack Lawrence. He wrote an amazing book called The Cat from Hue. Um, he actually goes as John Lawrence as an author, but he was. you can st- see his CBS stuff on um, on YouTube. And he said, you know, we would go out, because in those days the, the media was allowed on the helicopters quite frequently, and we would see the, the army or the marines getting whacked by the North Vietnamese, and we'd come back, and then we went to the what they called the five o'clock follies, the the um, Pentagon press conferences, mm-hmm. and they would say, you know, we did a reconnaissance in force, and we gleaned some valuable information, and they knew that was, at, if not a lie, it was certainly a very dishonest spin on what had actually happened. So he said, simply giving that voice full equal weight to what we'd actually seen was actually buying into being propagandizing. So that ba- that's a complicated mm-hmm. thing, and we're not here to discuss mm-hmm. journalistic ethics entirely, but mm-hmm. balance merely for its own sake mm-hmm. is important, but not necessarily the final mm-hmm. importance in journalism. And often used as an excuse, I think, for for allowing bad voices airtime, um, going, well, we've got to give a balanced view. I think we saw that a lot in the Trump years. That's absolutely true. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm interested to know when you are embedded with one side or another and you're living with them and working with them, are you able to report, not in a balanced way, but are you able to give the truth as you see it, knowing that, the people that you're living with and who are hopefully keeping you safe might see it differently? That's a very interesting and important question, and and, and I've thought about it a lot, obviously. I wasn't embedded in the Iraq war. I was an independent journalist driving up from Kuwait City into Basra and southern Iraq, so that that then we could do whatever we liked. Mm -hmm. So there's a very clear ethics here. First of all, absolutely, you cannot publish information where you act as a kind of unofficial forward observation post for the enemy. Right. So you can't reveal certain strategic mm. or tactical information. I mean, that's uh, I'm absolutely clear. Um, what I did with the Marines was a story about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. So we weren't reporting on their day-to-day fighting. We filmed their day-to-day fighting and then turned it into a series of five uh Shows for, for National Geographic. So w- that had to go through the Marine Corps. They were incredibly open for 95% or even more of what we did. They were very allowed the men to speak as they wished to speak. Um, there were certain bits of equipment that we weren't allowed to show on air. I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, but that was, we went there knowing we weren't telling a balanced story, if you like, about the, 
the, the Afghan war, we were filming a group of men doing extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. And so that was a story. If I would go back, say, to the Iraq war, um, if I had been Im- embedded, because I was interestingly embedded with the Burundian army just before 9-11. And uh, so, you know, people think that it's only an American or British kind of thing embedding, but it exists in all armies, you know. Um it's a very difficult line to cross. If they don't like what you're saying, that might be tough for them and tough for you, and they might kick you out. Okay. I was wondering uh, about that. But it depends. Your reporting of facts must be very respectful of their safety. Right. I think that's mm. clear. Mm. However, you're also not necessarily there to give an opinion on the Iraq war when you're surrounded by a group of men and women increasingly today who might be risking their lives. Mm-hmm. So usually you, you cover yourself quite effectively and quite correctly, I think, by saying, from what we can see, this is what we have observed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a fallacy in the public mind that you can then cross the lines and ask the Russians what they think. Right. And of course, you can't do that. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> And that would maybe be pushing the walking into the fear. Yes, it would. <laughs> it, it, it just no one would even attempt to do it. Yeah. As you're talking about, you know, the idea of therapy, the idea of how one gets over it, it seems to me that an important part for you must be the writing of fiction. That mm. must be a way of letting yourself go to a different part of your brain and a different way of writing and a different way of being. What brought you to writing fiction? And am I right that it is a type of therapy? You know, I think ever since I was that student who studied English and drama and film, I have wanted to do both. And I've always wanted to tell children's stories as well, and mm. I've done so. Um, so I've never... I've always felt that I could keep that balance between the fiction and the nonfiction in my life. And when I was with the Marines, for example, I read Lemony Snicket, uh, you know, in between attacks from the Taliban. So I, I, I've, I've worked to keep that Jungian metaphorical, if you like, softer side of myself alive, you know. Um, so when I was with the Marines, the rights to the non-fiction story and each sort of detail of what happened every day were National Geographics. So I couldn't write non-fiction about it. I mean, mm. now I can talk about my emotions and that kind of thing because mm. it's it's 10 years on. So I wrote a novel called Red Air. Mm. Now, a lot of what happened in that novel, and you guys write fiction as well, you know, you you bring in stuff that you hear. I mean, there was there's a character in the novel called Redbeard who's an American who's joined the Taliban. And I remember the Marines talking about a, a guy called Redbeard somewhere in Helmand province. Um, we didn't show that in the, you know, it was far too mm. complicated to try and show it in the in the National Geographic series. But it was perfect material for looking at the psychology of what might make an American join the Taliban and his frustration with a lot of, you know, the injustice that happens in every society, including America, and might drive him to do that. So... Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it now. You know, it really was a wonderful way to talk about things deeper than the actual day-to-day happenings. Mm. I also was able to talk about Afghans because when I was with the Marines, we met almost no Afghans and we never met an Afghan woman uh, because people ran away. We were in a very... Very, very strong Taliban-supporting area of Helmand province. So, you know... It it was a war. It was very mm. scary. It was very brutal, you know. Um, but it was important in writing a novel, I think, to bring in Afghan mm. voices. And I, I managed to do that through – I had been to Afghanistan before as well in 2001, just after 9-11. I was there in October. So it was like literally weeks after September 11. And there I did meet a lot of Afghans. We stayed with the Afghans in their village in Khuja Bahadin. So I was able to draw on that experience 10 years earlier mm. in fiction. So, you know, my hero in terms of storytelling is Steven Spielberg. He's done everything from mm. E.T. to Saving mm. Private yes. Ryan. And I think that's what I do and I would like to do. And I'm not mm. Steven Spielberg, you know, <laughs> but... 
I also write Arabella, my tweeny books, which started mm. when we were renovating our house in Parkview. And the, ha- the garden was full of wire, rusty wire and broken concrete and dust and everything else. And the children were sleeping on sleeping bags in the living room floor. And we were eating Woolies meals from, you know, the microwave. You know, you've probably all been through it. It's so comforting that you have this wild war hero type life, but also eating Woolies meals on the floor in Parkview. <laughs> it's making me feel a bit better about the smallness of my life. <laughs> okay. And I st- I'd actually thought of Arabella when I was teaching English in Japan at 23. And so it took many years before I wrote the, the story. But I started writing about Arabella who gets a magic mongongo nut from the Kalahari. Now, you know about mongongo nuts. Mm. From Arabella. From, yes, from <laughs> Arabella. Because <laughs> you get the real ones, which you actually get, which I was discovered, or, well, didn't discover, but found on a filming a it's a news piece in, in Botswana, in the Kalahari, that the elephants eat. And you can make creams for your body lotion and things out of mongongonas. But then you get the magic ones, mm-hmm. and you can turn into a butterfly. Uh-huh. <laughs> but then you see the hardy dogs get jealous, <laughs> and they want to steal it from you. So I allowed I, – I decided – I remember Gavin Hood, who's now moved on, but he said you act, when he did Tsotsi, the film Tsotsi, he said you access the universal through the local. And I thought, when I write this book, I'm influenced by Alice in Wonderland and Harry Potter mm. and all of those English, and to some degree, Oz, you know, the mm. English and American fairy tales. But I thought, I'm going to write a South African one, and it's going to be unashamedly South African. And that, of course, has been a great success. So there's Tyrone Avenue in Parkview, and there's Akbar, who's a broom seller, who's a refugee from Timbuktu, and he's got a magic amulet that comes all the way from Timbuktu. And, uh, you know, I filmed in Timbuktu, so and I got an amulet there. It wasn't – well, it is magic because it produced Arabella. <laughs> so I deliberately keep those different facets. I mean, in one day I can be writing Arabella in the morning and then filming, as I did on thir- on Wednesday, a conference on green green hydrogen and the energy transition for, for news, you know. So I, I like that diversity. Hamilton, I have – long admired the way you market and hand sell your children's books and I, th- I think it's it's quite aspirational and it's something I've never got right I've done some school visits I've done some markets where you set up a stall but it's something that uh, I think some of your success as a children's writer can be owed to that are you quite intentional about that absolutely I mean I've probably sold I didn't. I haven't kept an exact count, but certainly over five thousand, over seven thousand copies of my books. It's wow. hard work. I go to the market. You get there at five in the morning, and you set up the stall in the darkness. Particularly hard in the winter. Mm-hmm. And I don't sell my other books because I, I do at book fairs. Right. But I sell my children's books at places like the Linden Market, and I only sell Arabella. Right. You know, I think that's appropriate for. Appropriate is the wrong word, but I think that's best for, mm. you know, just and kids love it. I mean, it's the covers are like I am's to children, you know, I am's are to cats, you know. Right. right, right. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's. It, I mean, I, I read. It's, it's obviously, like for all of us, the pandemic stopped a lot of our, our public mm. lives, mm. and mm. Um, I read for the first time in about three years at Salvazione School, which is a lovely little school in Brixton, the other day, and the children were absolutely you know, entranced. And I, 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 you know, some might think Arabella's not serious, but I'm telling you, Arabella's going to live forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, she really is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lovely feeling to have about something you're writing, because I often feel novels are very transient. You know, they're on shelf for a certain amount of time and then they're gone. And people think that writing gives you this sort of a life beyond your own. But I sometimes feel like, they have such a short life. So it's a lovely feeling to have that it's going to last forever. Well, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but I, yeah, I do, I do believe in it. I mean, I, I've learned to trust my inner self. And I don't suffer from any more. Of course, like everybody, I did suffer from imposter syndrome as a younger person, a younger writer. I think it's probably even a natural. I think it's a natural. I remember that 19-year-old sitting on his bed thinking, lying on his bed, I should say, lazy, 
<laughs> I think that's where 19-year-olds sit. <laughs> and I, I realized that a deep inner compulsion was making me do this. And it was a very positive, it was the universe speaking to me and saying, you, this is what you need to do with your life. And I'm deeply fortunate that I found that. Mm. I want to go a little bit back to process. I'm the, the part of the podcast obsessed with process. And you said earlier, you got up early this morning to write. And I'm wondering what your writing day looks like. Are you like Fiona, I say giving her a dirty look, <laughs> who gets up at five in the morning and gets her writing for the day done? What is your writing day like? Well, I'm not quite at five usually because I do too many days where I've got to film the sunrise. So, you know, you're up at 4.30. So, but it's certainly I'm, I'm, I'm usually working by seven. Mm-hmm. And my writing days are very, very scattered because I make my greatest living from making television news and documentaries. So on a day when I've got to get up at 4.30 to, to work, to go and film a sunrise, there's going to be no writing that happens that day. So I have to steal little bits of time wherever I can. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, it can be, f- Frustrating and even a little bit scary because you think, you know, my life's going by and I'm not writing as much as I would like to. However, almost every one of my books has had a very strong base in what mm. I've been working as a filmmaker. Mm. So I do see it. You know, I was saying to somebody the other day, you know, the light really went off for me a few years ago, some years ago, when I realized you can be a storyteller, you can make films, you can write novels, you can do journalism, you can write children's books, you can even, I mean, interacting on Facebook and Twitter for me less so, but is a form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, and so if you, if, if you allow yourself to open up to that storytelling, then there's a lot more opportunities. And, you know, we all know how hard it is to sell books in South Africa. So if I only relied on books, I, I, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. You, know. you seem to be equally attracted to historical stories and contemporary stories. Which draws you more? How do you decide whether a story belongs, say, in ancient Rome or belongs in um, fairly modern Afghanistan, say? Well, that's very interesting. I'm fascinated by history. I mean, I... I started history in what was then standard eight halfway through the year and two weeks before the mid-year exams and I got a, I got nearly a distinction and my teacher pulled me out and said, well done and everybody clapped. And, and so history was very important to me. I tend to do a lot of really powerful and worthwhile stuff, contemporary work in my journalism. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think that I don't have time necessarily to write the Zuma corruption book, mm-hmm. because there are other people doing it a lot better than me. I'm not a specialist in investigative journalism. So I tend to say, okay, what allows my fictional creative muse a little time to develop? And so choosing a historical moment always allows you to have some more creative freedom. And in the King Shilling, which I wrote about South Africans in the First World War in, in East Africa, it was very influenced by the lies the American government told about the Iraq War, which I was bitterly angry and disappointed about. Mm-hmm. So all my books do have a contemporary resonance, mm. but uh, the creative juices are partly just out of sheer fascination with history. I mean, that book started in Mombasa. And I was filming, I don't even know what, I think it was a sugar corruption story. A sugar the, corruption story, yeah. unusual. Yeah, yeah, for the BBC, <laughs> I think it was for Newsnight. And the cameraman who was English, living in Kenya at the time, we were outside Fort Jesus and there was a cannon there that said something about the South African troops. And he said, oh, yeah, the South Africans got their butts kicked by the by the Germans here. And I was like, no, that can't be possible. But I, I discovered there was a battle called the Battle of Salita Hill. I think it was February 12th, 1916. And um, the South Africans, they had three regiments, the, the 5th, 6th, and 7th Transvaal. And they were hurriedly put together for the First World War. Most of the troops were young men. Some of the NCOs in particular were men who'd served on either side in the Boer War. So there's literally almost, I th- 
somebody was running up Spionkopen and the other car was <laughs> running down Spionkopen. They met as NCOs in, in East Africa in, in 1916. And um, the South Africans were overconfident. They were very racist about the ability of black black troops. Now, these were highly trained Ascaris mm. from a lot from Tanzania, Kenya, and Sudan, and under the Germans under von Leto Forbeck. And they sent the, the South Africans running. They panicked and ran and they abandoned their machine guns. And they were rescued by the 130th Baluchis, who are from what was then the Northwest Frontier Province today, who the Taliban are drawn from. So if you've got the Taliban on your side. <laughs> so it, a lot of the resonance of that book also was about. In many ways, the First World War was the moment that black people realized they could actually fight and win for their independence because they saw white troops being defeated on the battlefield by black troops. And in the end, white and Indian troops succumbed so badly to malaria and other diseases that the last years of the First World War fought almost entirely by black soldiers. So they had black soldiers from Nigeria and Ghana fighting in Mozambique. I, I mean, this is a very little-known history of, of our continent. You know. I am being completely stunned as you speak, and maybe maybe this is a reflection on my own worries at the moment. But by your memory, you have you come up with you remember just now the name of a village in Afghanistan, and you remember the date of a battle. Is it me or do you have an extraordinary memory? Well, I don't think I do, but my sister does think I've got a good memory, so I'm going to take her word for it, and I'll take your word for it. Yeah, I. what I do find is I've now told so many stories and filmed in so many places and that some of the articles, going back and looking at my old articles, 20, 25 years old, some of them I don't even remember where I was. I mean, I, it's there written, the dateline mm. is there, you know. So I think we all... We can't keep everything in our heads. And I mean, that's, that, that is a frustration because I'm getting to the point now where I can really reflect valuably on these experiences that at the time I was a young guy just going through them. And I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm going to remember that. Thank well, you. I can barely remember what I ate for breakfast. So I'm absolutely stunned by you. I'm, I'm feeling quite jealous. <laughs> Hamilton, we like to ask our guests what they have been reading or listening to or watching lately that has made some kind of an impression on them. So do you have any? Yeah, you us? know, I mean, I, I was given the opportunity to review Daryl Bristow Bovey's Finding Endurance. So I've been reading it for the last 10 days or so. And then I had to write the piece this week. Mm -hmm. And uh, I discovered, I think, through Bruce Chatwin, a book called The Worst Journey in the World. By mm -hmm. Absley Cherry Garrard. It's a long book. He was on Scott's expedition, but he never went to the South Pole with Scott. Right. He instead did what was called the winter journey, where they went to go and find penguin eggs. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, they believed that the penguin was possibly a link between reptilian and mammals in terms of evolution. Okay. Or certainly okay. birds and mammals. And that was the belief. So they walked across the Antarctic while Scott was going to the South Pole. And they had an appalling journey. And they had to bring these eggs back. And they one tent, one point their tents blew off, so they had to sleep in the snow, digging little holes. I mean, it, just the suffering. I mean, with all these early polar explorations. And he comes back, and he's a really thoughtful guy. And the worst journey in the world is an incredible description of what he went through as a human being. But what really resonates for me in that book is he said, we went so that the world may build on what it knows and not on what it believes. Right. And so they found out when they took the eggs back that they, they were not a link between mammals and reptiles or mammals and birds or whatever. But the point is they wouldn't, might not have known that as soon as they did if he hadn't walked across the Antarctic mm. to bring back half a dozen penguin eggs. Mm. So that idea that, and it's particularly important in today's world because people now argue, oh, well, you know what, the election was stolen in America. It depends on what you believe. It depends who you believe. It doesn't depend who you believe. Mm. 62 courts' decisions were that the elections weren't stolen as a starting point for mm. authenticated evidence. It's really, really important that we stick to this because democracy depends, and I'm sounding a little pompous here, but democracy depends upon reason. Mm. 
And I'm finding the penguin eggs. I'm finding the penguin eggs. And one finding, importantly, what the penguin eggs really do mean, not what you think they mean. Mm. Mm. Right. Yeah, Very but, inspiring. But that belief in authenticated evidence, in holding people to account, as, as Martha Gellhorn, as I talked about earlier, is something that is under attack. And mm-hmm. it's under attack because of fear. Because society, societies always change. I mean, when I look at the anti, the homophobic fear that is rising in mm. our society, right. and I think, you know, a hundred years ago, women were regarded as too emotional or stupid or whatever to vote. Mm. Now, nobody in their right mind would even consider such a, a thought today. So, you know, the idea, people are behind the times, you know, they they look at these people and they they, they fear them so they 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 invent well they don't invent but they cling on to some kind of unproven mm. accusation and and so that that bothers me you know I mean I it's uh, I wrote a piece about that recently. I would argue anybody that it doesn't bother needs to look very carefully into themselves. But we could talk about that all day. Don't yeah, get me on that particular yeah, no, no, soapbox. No, I think we, we, we would agree with one another. <laughs> Well, Hamilton, thank you so much for your time. We hope that everybody checks out your books. I'm sure many of them are available in print and online. And they're particularly, on they're all on Amazon Not, Kindle. Arabella's on clockworkbooks.coza. Right, right, right. We are stable mates at Clockwork Books. I yes, have a, exactly. a book there, and you have your Arabella books there. So we hope everybody buys them, checks them out, maybe runs into you at a, a book fair or a market somewhere in the Parkview area. But thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Hamilton. Well, Gail, that was so interesting. And once again, unlike anything we've had before on the podcast, I could have sat there for three hours listening to those war stories. It was riveting. Absolutely. I was fascinated. I was intrigued. I I, I was a bit traumatized. Yes. That story about the dog threw me a little bit. I had to gather myself um, and he just threw it in as a passing. I mean, that, that wasn't even a major trauma in his life. I mean, it's, it's he is fascinating. He really is. And what in particular did you get from that chat? So for me, what was very interesting is what he said about the opportunity for a storyteller being more than just writing a story. Mm-hmm. That if you are a storyteller, you tell your story in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I find that idea something my, my brain wants to chew over it a bit more. And particularly the idea that the way we engage on social media is part of a storytelling process. Yes. And we, we must treat it like that. We, mm-hmm. we, must, we must tell our stories in different ways. We must come to it with the same excitement we come to our stories. So that, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited about where those thoughts are going to take me. And you, Fiona? It's a similar kind of idea. I was captivated by what he said about being embedded with one of the armies and telling a non-fiction story for the sake of reporting and then using his fiction to tell a different story like the chatter between the soldiers about the guy who was called Redbeard mm-hmm. who was rumored to be somewhere running around Helmand province and and that he took that little unofficial story and turned it into fiction or used it in his fiction and I love that. I greatly love fiction more than nonfiction. And the, the idea of using the untold stories, the liminal stories, the stories between the stories, the stories behind the stories, mm. and turning that into fiction, that really lights me up. And I'm excited to go and do something with that. It actually reminds me of something someone once taught me in my day job, which was about making your work work hard for you. So mm-hmm. so in, as a lawyer, if you write an opinion on something, you can also get an article out of it. Maybe right. you can go and do an interview on it. Maybe you can do a chapter and a textbook on it. You can make it more than just that opinion. You can make your work work hard for you. And I think that's what he does. He doesn't just get the nonfiction story. He also mm-hmm. gets the fiction ideas and the, the core, the story seed for that story. He makes his work work hard for him. Oh, I love that idea. I really do. And in terms of writing advice, have you got something for us this week? So it's a little bit related, in fact, to the whole idea of being a storyteller. It's not writing advice maybe as 
so much as writing inspiration and it comes from something I years ago was lucky enough to hear Jeffrey Archer speak in Johannesburg and he was talking about the idea that you have very literary writers Mm -hmm. and you have storytellers and occasionally you have someone who's both and they are the really amazing wonder writers but he is just a storyteller he says Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. gave me permission to be a storyteller um, because I am a storyteller Um, and I think that that's something I find inspiring and I hope might inspire other people that you don't have to be writing beautiful literary fiction. You can just, and I'm using inverted commas, be a storyteller. I like that. I really do. And uh, from my side, what I have to tell our listeners this week is from my experience of crafting those first 10,000 words of a book, if there are exciting bits that you are keen to get in front of the editor and then there are more boring bits that you you don't really want to Mm. be showcasing maybe those boring bits don't belong there in the first place and I remember last week you you said to me maybe you should just drop your whole first chapter maybe if if it's not particularly exciting you should just ditch the whole thing and start on chapter two and you mentioned that you in your drafting process you quite often do that just start closer to the actual story Mm. and Yes, I think when we go through it, look at the bits that excite you, look at the bits that are a bit more filler, a bit more boring, and ask yourself, do they deserve to be there at all? Excellent advice. Well, if you have ever read anything by Hamilton Wendy, if you are interested in a career in journalism or war reporting, uh, if anything we've said today on the podcast has resonated with you, please get in touch. We're on email. We're on all social media. Our details are in the show notes, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.